Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome to the College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. Here are your co-hosts, Doug Maurice and Shahan Jeharaja. And we're back on the College Football Survivor Show. Doug Maurice, still no Shahan. He'll be back next week. And we are talking about two more playoff contenders, and they're linked by their quarterbacks. We're going to do Oregon and Notre Dame on this version of the College Football Survivor Show. Hope you enjoyed that little visit through the Big Ten West on the last episode. If you didn't listen to it, I would direct you there because it's really about something, that, again, that we're losing in college football with, with the lack of the division format. Anyway, Oregon and Notre Dame, spring football done for both. I looked on college football reference, and I did a little search there. The quarterbacks in college football with the most career passing yards. Number one is Sam Hartman at Notre Dame. Left Wake Forest is going to be the starting quarterback at Notre Dame this year. He has 12,967 passing yards in college football. Think about that. That's a lot. He was in the class of 2018 as a recruit. Now he's at Notre Dame. Number two is Dylan Gabriel, who's going to be at Oklahoma. And number three is Bo Nix, who is at Oregon. Bo Nix has 10,844 career passing yards. He's in the class of 2019. All three of those guys transferred, right? If you stick around, it's hard to me stick around that long at one school. But all three of those guys are now at major programs, Notre Dame, Oklahoma, Oregon, and they all started somewhere else before they went to these places. These programs are willing to take, not only willing, wanting to take established guys and maybe risk losing big-time quarterback recruits in the process. At Oregon, Bo Nix is back for year two as the starter this year. Dante Moore, big-time recruit at quarterback, was committed to Oregon. Bo Nix comes back. He decides he's going to UCLA. Maybe that's not exactly connected, but if you thought you were on to the future at Oregon, you're not. Ty Thompson, also a big-time quarterback there. He's waited his turn after coming in as a top recruit. He's behind Bo Nix. Notre Dame, Tyler Buckner, Went to now go be the quarterback in the quarterback mix at Alabama. He was a big-time recruit. He began last year as a starter. He got hurt. As we detail on this podcast, Sam Hartman comes in. Notre Dame loses two quarterbacks into the transfer portal. Both guys who played last year, Tyler Buckner and Drew Pine. Why? Because these big-time programs will take certainty. Will take a sure thing. Will take a guy who established something somewhere else, and they think there's even more upside at the new school. So Sam Hartman and Bo Nix what Notre Dame and Oregon are trying to do this season with these guys is very similar. Will it work? Can it get them in the playoff? Has a chance. Definitely has a chance. And to cover that, 
We talked to James Crepia of OregonLive.com about the Oregon Ducks, who just had their spring game this past Saturday. So that's why we waited to do Oregon. They just wrapped this up. Bo Nix played the whole game. Ty Thompson, the backup quarterback, also played. They let their guys play. And then we talked with Eric Hansen of InsideNDSports.com about how Sam Hartman looked, the decision that led Tyler Buckner to leave, what it might look like for Marcus Freeman in year two at Notre Dame. The other two things about these schools, right? They both are led by defensive head coaches now in year two. Dan Lanning at Oregon, Marcus Freeman at Notre Dame. And these are guys who, hey, we're a defensive guy. I don't want to wait and develop a quarterback. Let's go. Let's go with this right now. So I think these are these are two programs that absolutely have opportunities to be in the playoff mix this year. And they both play USC. That's interesting, right? USC, not going to be easy. Pac-12 schedule plus Notre Dame. We know how good the, we think the Pac-12 is going to be. We've done Oregon State on our spring wrap. We've done Washington on our spring wrap. We've done USC on our spring wrap. We're now doing Oregon. I think we might try to get to Utah on a future pod. But for now, we always appreciate you guys joining us on the College Football Survivor Show. We'll start it with James Crepia talking Oregon, wrapping up spring football with the Ducks. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Joined now by James Crepia of The Oregonian, OregonLive.com. Oregon beat writer, one of the finest college football writers in all the land. James, thanks for giving us some time here on the College Football Survivor Show. Well, thanks for having me, Doug. Good to catch up with you as always. So, Oregon, fascinating team, right? Let's start with Bo Nix, who if we were doing, I don't know, the 10 most fascinating people in college football, I think you could put Bo Nix on that list with what he accomplished in his career at Auburn, for three years, then came to Oregon last year, and now is going to play a fifth full year of college football, staying with the Oregon Ducks. James, last year you saw his production, his completion percentage went up by 10 points from what he did at Auburn. He threw 29 touchdown passes, which was almost double his best season at Auburn. Her, his yards per attempt went way up. How much more is out there for Bo Nix, what he could be this year, and what did you see from him in the spring? Because you got... You got a full healthy look at him in the spring game, right? 19 of 40 in the spring game. What What's next for Bo Nix? I think because as you allude to, Doug, part of it is like, I, I don't even know if it's unprecedented because the last couple of years of COVID, I'm sure there probably were a couple of fifth year starters in terms of served as five year starters in college football, which like historically obviously never would have been the case. Yeah. But the last couple of years was a possibility. And then, certainly falls in that category now. Um, so beyond statistical accolades and things that will move up by way of his career marks relative to anybody, his career marks at Oregon, his career, whatever the case may be, beyond those things that I'm sure we'll get to chronicle along the way. Um, I think, you know, we probably in the college football side of things, then we, we just come off the draft. So this is like a perfect example. We look at players sometimes and say like, oh, well, what do they have to prove? What do they have to accomplish? What do they have to get better at? And then they go to the draft, and I'm not talking about Bo specifically, I'm talking about anybody. 
then all of a sudden it's like, well, they were a fifth or sixth or seventh round pick or an undrafted free agent. Why was that? Well, was that because they weren't strong enough, fast enough? You know, what, what was the issue? Injuries? Um, or what were the things? And then you leave, you look at, you know, league scouting reports or things and you go, yeah, a lot of the things that they point out actually were true. <laughs> there were flaws. Mm-hmm. Come to think of it, there isn't, the, there isn't a such thing as the perfect player. So I say all that to say, so in Bo Nix's case, what does that mean? Everybody wants to improve accuracy. Everybody wants to improve decision making. And this league had really dynamic offenses last year. We're probably going to have them again. Um, the defense is probably overhauling a bit. Um, so I'd say that accuracy and decision making, which were already good, can always be better. Uh, and the times that it needs to be there against the best defenses, where the windows are tightest. Um, which again, I'm not saying that those were areas that were bad for him. He had a great year, but when. You know, yes, Georgia was an, a, a megalith, and it's the opener, and it's the first game of the season, and all those things. Sure, but if they're going to be a team that's going to compete for and play for and win a Pac-12 championship, and compete for and contend for and hope to reach the college football playoff, you need to be that much better. You'd be that much better when you're on against better defenses, including when they play SC this season, including when they play Washington this season, including when they play at Utah in November. This season, you know, those are some of those games. You know, and I'm not looking past Texas Tech in week two and a trip to Lubbock where, yes, they lose an incredible pass rusher that they just had, but you know, there's going to be challenges. So in some of those settings, some of the, frankly, some of the settings that he has this year is doing it on the road. I mean, yes, he won some road games last year, but they have SC at home. Well, they got to go to Utah. They got to go to Washington. They got to go to Texas Tech. Those are things that weren't the case last year. Yes, they get to host Oregon State. Yes, they get to host USC. But some of their bigger tests are going to come on the road. I think that's that's part of it for Bo and this team as a whole. You look at the skill guys around him, two leading rushers back, Troy Flank, Franklin, leading receiver back, add Treshawn Holden, transfer in the receiver room. From from what you've seen in your time covering Oregon, James, good skill, great skill, average skill, the guys who are going to have the ball in their hands once Bo Nix gets rid of it. What did you see this spring? So bearing in mind that um, this has been five this will be the fifth season for me uh, coming up, or the sixth season, excuse me, uh, coming up this fall. So it doesn't have like a perspective of 30 years of history or something by way of that I've seen with my own two eyes, you know, in person. Um, but in this sample size, Oregon has had talented backs before, talented running back rooms before. But this is probably the most talented collection of backs because Bucky Irving is back and is most productive returning back in the league. Uh, and Noah Whittington was a really productive back for them as a number two. And frankly, they I, I, I never say there's such things as co-starters. There may be circumstances that allow somebody else to start. Bucky Irving's a starter. But Noah Whittington is a really, really good number two back. And Jordan James, who is a true freshman, has a carved out role, which is probably just only going to expand. And you add two really talented freshmen, and Jane Lamar and Dante Daldell, who they're probably going to play. Mm-hmm. Like, significant number of reps and snaps. So this is a running back court. Like how many, how many teams out there can really say that they're confidently three deep and practically four or five deep and truly say that, not just say like, yeah, we're always that deep. No, no, no. Like really mean it. Um, and Oregon again has had talented backs last couple of years, but this is probably the deepest by way of true depth of talent of, of blue chippers, former four, you know, four and five star kind of guys at receiver. Again, a room that needed to overhaul is probably one of the last position groups being overhauled um, with this staff uh, taking over. Um, 
So there are upgrades here. Yes, Troy Franklin coming back in, one of the best and explosive receivers in the league. Adding a Trayshawn Holden helps. Adding a Tez Johnson, who we've got to see in the spring game, but got a really long uh, yards after catch, yards after contact kind of plays. Those guys help in a huge way. And Chris Hudson coming back is another dynamic player for them. Not the most productive, but can certainly have, you know, has a skill set that they can utilize. But this is a room where if that's the top four in a room of nine, they need to get to the point where a guy like a Chris Hudson in an ideal world, you know, is probably on like the six or seven line insofar as depth. If you're, if you're ever going to reach the stage of saying like Oregon's receiver core is comparable to that of an Ohio State mm-hmm. or where Alabama has been or what LSU was at different points. If they're ever going to get to that point, which is a monumental leap, <laughs> let's, be, you know, let's call it what it is. Um, Oregon's had a great run of quarterbacks the last 15, 20 plus years. They have not had anything like that at the receiver position by way of some of those schools I just mentioned. So, yes, they have very good skill. Yes, they have a really deep running back board. Yes, they have some receivers who are competent and may be adding to it. Uh, yet here in this offseason now, in this May period, but there is still a lot of room there uh, in terms of ever getting to the point of, of the elites that have multiple first-round kind of receivers. They're not there yet. They're not. Um, but can, can they get there, and are they building toward that direction? Yes, the trend is toward that direction as opposed to the trend of like, oh, boy, they're in a downturn. No, that's not the case. They're in a positive trajectory, but they're still a considerable distance behind some places that have just you know an embarrassment of riches in the receiver position. I've been – particularly interested in the tackle conversations for the best teams in college football, because there do just seem to be Ohio state among them, some top teams that are just like looking for potential starting offensive tackles in the portal. When you think about Oregon with Josh Connerly as a five-star second year guy at left tackle, that's like right plays as a backup last year, ready to go as a starter in year two. That's how you do it. And then a Johnny Cornelius is a guy who everybody wanted out of the portal and Oregon got him left and right tackle I know Oregon lost two all Pac-12 guys off that offensive line, but particularly at tackle, are they should they be pretty confident with how those two positions look coming out of spring, James? They should be pretty confident. So they're losing more than just the, the tackles, to be clear, from last year. Having said that, for as talented as the offensive line was, and it was, and they were really good, and they allowed the fewest sacks in the country last year, and they had multiple guys drafted and others who were off to mini camps or undrafted free agents and all that. Yes, but they are returning and brought in, like you mentioned, and a Johnny Cornelius. They bring in a junior angle out from Texas who started north of 30 games there. You get to see him in the spring because he's coming off injury. They expect him to be ready for fall camp, etc. Well, you mentioned you bring in a five-star and, and Josh Connolly, who everyone wanted that they had a year ago. He goes through his first spring. You've got him in position to be the, left, the starting left tackle. You bring in a, a Johnny Cornelius who everyone, including Ohio State and others, wanted at right tackle. You have guys who add in an angle out. You have a 60-year senior in Stephen Jones coming back. Who the plan would have been for him to be with his current crop and would have left last year, but he got hurt. And he had the additional year, so he's taking it. But the plan would have been for him actually to have left and, and gone in the draft this past year, but he got hurt, so he's utilizing it. And then they're figuring out the center position with a Jackson Powers Johnson who stepped in and played at center and started a couple of games between center and guard and a Marcus Harper who started games of guard last season. They have players with starting experience, some with a lot of starting experience, some with starting experience at the FCS level and others who just had significant volume of reps for a team who has to replace four or five offensive line starters. 
that's the distant narrative. But the details on the ground are, yeah, but they have a lot of experience, either that they brought in or that they have coming back, that they are competently, a, not just starting group, that they have, they have a competent six-man rotation with guys then on the second line, that they have a very legitimate two-deep than Pac-12. They're going to have a competitive advantage on the line of scrimmage against probably everybody they play. That feels like a pretty good offense. Right. You're talking about a, a fifth year starter quarterback. And then we can even throw in Ty Thompson as a highly recruited backup quarterback that's been around for a while at Oregon. You're talking about a, a talented offensive line as deep of a running back room as you just talked about. And, you know, not all the way there, but upside and trending the right, the right way at receiver or like this. This offense is going to score some points. This You said this, the quarterback play, the high level offensive potential in the Pac-12 with Caleb Williams and Michael Penix and Cam Rising and DJ Uyunglele and everything, like this has a chance to be an excellent quarterback offensive league. But are you expecting that Oregon will score with basically anybody on their schedule in 2023? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Because they were already that dynamic in offense before. And... As I say, for all they lost, they're set on the O-line to, again, have a competitive advantage relative to competition for the most part. Again, I'm not saying absolutely you know, dominate every single every single rep, every single play. No, come on now, be realistic. But advantage, uh, in some cases, dramatically so. And in terms of those skill positions, again, with the depth of running back, with a proven starter quarterback, and with a receiving core that at the top end, is talented and maybe may be adding. I don't want to create false expectations, either locally or nationally. They're like, oh, I'm, you know, Oregon beat writers saying they're going to add all these receivers. No, they may be adding some receivers here this offseason. That's a lot of weapons. Now, having said that, yes, this is a league that has turning quarterbacks who have proven themselves last year and uh, several of whom have a lot of weapons. So this is going to be a, a really potent offensive league again. And you mentioned some of those names, some of the others in terms of the freshman side of things. Doug, I mean, think about UCLA. Yeah, they have to replace Dorian Thompson-Robinson, but they do have a Dante Moore there. And yes, brought in some guys out of the portal. Arizona State's in a rebuild. They land Jaden Rashada. Colorado's in a rebuild. They have Shador Sanders. So there's the top-end proven guys at quarterback in this league, and there are also the really highly, highly touted freshman or younger quarterbacks in this league where I mean, how many of these could truly say like a Cam Ward would be like the seventh or eighth quarterback in their league by way of yep. t- talent or, or provenness or, or level of you know, how, uh, perception nationally? A lot of people would sign up for that, is all I'm saying. So, Pac 12 quarterback play, um, probably going to be pretty excellent uh, this fall. Football Outsiders ratings last year, Oregon sixth in offense, 51st in defense. Defensively, they lose Christian Gonzalez at corner, one of the best corners in the country last year, first-round pick. They lose Noah Sewell at linebacker, who's a three-year starter, really good player. You know, Dan Lanning's a defensive head coach, but you do have offensive firepower. Like, how good does this Oregon defense need to be for Oregon to have a chance to win the Pac-12 and be in the playoff conversation and I know, right, coming out of spring, this happens a lot. Sort of the defense feels like it's ahead of the offense, and it felt like that in the spring game, right, that is, you know, the defense did some good things. I don't know. Did, are there good vibes coming out of spring for the Oregon defense, or are there a lot of question marks for this defense? 
Yes. <laughs> that's a good, I mean, that's, that's what spring's for, right? Good, good vibes and big questions. Both. Yeah. Um, 51st, uh, for defense last year, I, I don't think would be a, uh, fully captures the issues that this defense had last year. Um, there were areas that they were statistically improved compared to the year before. There were areas of some positive. Overwhelmingly, though, this defense did not play well last year. It didn't in any number of areas. Uh, even in areas where they improved, if you go on a yards per game basis, on a yards per play basis, they did not. Uh, and ultimately, call it what it is, they had two second-half leads against rivals in November and lost games. And it had the large part to do with the defense in both cases, defense and special teams. And that's with, like you say, the first-round cornerback who hardly anyone really challenged and never got beat for anything of consequence during the season, really. And gave up a touchdown against George in the opener on an incredible pass and catch. That might have been the biggest play he gave up all year, truly. Um, so you have that, and you have four guys drafted, three in the top 150. And your leading tackler is a top undrafted free agent. The only reason why he goes undrafted is for safety, a low-value position. In the, at the next level, he was slow. And he knew it. And that's it. How many other defenses, no matter first-year head coach, first coordinator, personnel overhaul, et cetera, et cetera, are going to rank in the hundreds or 120s in pass defense, scoring, or whatever the category is that they did in a lot of categories last year? Devoid of pass rush despite having an edge player drafted. And other guys who probably will be in the front seven uh, this year as well as you know, this past year. How many can really say that? Not many. Not many that can say they had that kind of talent in a league that doesn't have a lot of it necessarily. It doesn't have incredible offensive lines who you were playing. Yours may have been really good, but how about everybody else's? And have the issues. So having said that, there's only in a lot of areas, there's only one direction to go. Mm. Now at the cornerback position with Christian Gonzalez, there's also only one direction to go. No matter how good somebody else may be, he was at an elite level. So they have areas to improve. Are there positive vibes of spring? Yes. You saw that with some of the freshmen in the spring game with Cole Martin uh, making several big plays. You saw that with Mateo, Delay making some plays. Those are some of the freshmen who stood out quickly in the spring game. I'm sorry, I'm not saying there weren't others in the course of spring, but you know, we don't get to see very much <laughs> else in the course of spring. So those two stood out, the people for the masses. That said, are there still question marks, though? Yes, there are. Because they added Jordan Burge from South Carolina on the edge, and they have some guys returning in the front seven, and their D-line is deeper than it was a year ago. Yes, yes, all true. But for the past two years, you've had Kayvon Thibodeau, and you had the lowest sacks in 20 years since the NCAA was tracking sacks per game. And then you lost him, and you went down from a historic low with a third-round pick on the edge. Generating pass rush and getting to the passer from multiple guys is still a question. Overall pass defense which would both, you know, the front helps the back and vice versa. Yeah, yes. So there's positive vibes at some of those positions where they need it. But there's, there are still questions because they got to prove it. Because the areas that were so glaring weaknesses, they, they have to prove it. It can't just be about off-season conversation and conjecture. They got to show it, and they got to show it against some really good teams. And I mentioned that Texas Tech game in week two. That's a team with a returning quarterback who started his career at Oregon and who's going to have some weapons, and it's a road game. So they're going to be tested early in a lot of this. So the positive vibes thing is going to be put to test very quickly uh, for this defense. And do they have the talent to feel like they can be up for it? Absolutely. 
and a coaching. Sure. But they got to do it. We'll let you go with this one, James. Oregon, again, is just such an interesting program. You throw out the COVID year, because especially for the Pac-12, that was such a weird year. Then the last three years, double-digit wins. 10-3 and three last year, 10-4 and four in 2021, 12-2 and two in 2019. Make the transition from Mario Cristobal to Dan Lanning. The Pac-12 itself is in flux. A lot of times when there's conversations around schools like Oregon and Washington and things like that, it's like, hey, what conference are they going to be in in five years from now and that kind of thing? But the football. You know, there's a lot of potential here. We've seen how good Oregon can be, and Oregon is very, very good. Where do you think Oregon is in the college football hierarchy right now? And, like, where should it be? And if we say, okay, Georgia, Bama, maybe they're in a top tier by themselves, right? You know, I don't know. Maybe Ohio State's in there. Clemson at their peak is in there. But that second tier of college football, where you're not Georgia, you're not Bama, Is that where Oregon should be? Is that where Oregon is in your mind? That like, hey, we are a real playoff contender. You know, we're not stacking national titles, but we have high hopes every year. And at some point you have to break through. Maybe in the last, you know, 10 years, Oregon hasn't quite broken through that way. We know what the Pac-12 playoff history has been, but they're darn good, James. But I don't know. Is there even another level? For the Ducks, where, 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 like, uh, give like an hour thesis statement about <laughs> where Oregon is, but do it in like three minutes. I was going to say, yeah, you don't, you don't, don't ever tell me to fill an hour. <laughs> you, know, you know, it's possible. Um, yeah, I, I think it, it, to your point, especially with the expanded playoff, this is going to be the conversation that a lot of us have, and now the sport. This, this is going to be how we, we shape and frame the sport and redefine uh, what success is. And what the standard is for given places going forward with the 12 team, because it's called what it is a down year now. And certainly with a 12 team playoff for a Nick Saban coach team, Kirby smart coach team or Ohio state, regardless of who the coaches at any given time is if they're not in the top four, a down year for one of those is when they have to host as you know, a five through eight seed. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and the sky is falling if, if they have to go on the road, um, you know, in any of those settings. That's, that's, you know, cataclysmic disaster in those places. So Oregon's not to that tier, to your point. Can they get there? Do they aspire to get there? They certainly aspire to get there. Can they stay there? If they get there, can they stay there consistently? That's always the, you know, everybody's trying. Yeah. <laughs> but to your point, like, you know, only a few can do it. Um, but in a 12-team playoff, should they be a team and a program that can and should hang with anybody and everybody for playoff eligibility and, and positioning every year? Yeah. Yeah, they should in this world, in this era, and every which thing about it with recruiting and who they have as staff and NIL and collectives and all that stuff. Yes. And I think that's going to be, once we do get to the 12-team playoff, what will be their aspiration is to be in contention for the playoff every year. Yes. And then we're going to be defining success as, did they or didn't they make it? And not, oh, you know, obviously what, what unbelievable success that they did, but no, truly judging that a season was a failure because they didn't. Um, and there are places that, whether you want to say it's arrogance or ego or, or just reality, there will be places that will look at seasons as a failure because they missed the playoff. There will be places who will view it as a failure. Like I say, I'm not even being jokingly about it. 
<laughs> Tuscaloosa and Athens, they would probably look at it as a failure if, if they're not, you know, in the first round by. Mm-hmm. So you have to set that standard. You have to achieve it in order to set it. And I think Oregon is a place that can and should, given their resources, probably look to be in contention for the playoff on an annual basis going forward. And if you do that and you, you know, then become sustained success, well, then that, like I say, then you are setting the standard for what is the minimum. And I think what's also different, Doug, because of the last couple of years, and by, by couple, I mean literally like two, by way of freedom of movement and a one-time transfer, but also the elimination of the initial counter to where rosters are able to be overturned the way they are now in the off-seasons as we're seeing across the country, is that even at places that get there, you aren't going to have the up the post-championship fall off because they lost a lot of guys to the NFL. I don't think you're going to see that to the scale that we've seen it at a couple of programs like LSU in particular after a couple of national championships over the last 20 years. Because of volume of guys that they had go to the draft, they couldn't fill. Even if they had 25 five-stars, they wouldn't have necessarily been able to fill because the portal wasn't as robust a thing at the time or the initial counter existed. Now, I don't think that's going to be a thing at places that do ever get to that point. I don't think you're going to see the swings be that dramatic. So sustaining is going to be, for those at the top, I think it is about to become, relatively speaking, easier to stay there, which also concurrently means it's going to be that much harder to get there and stay there for those who haven't gotten there yet. Oregon's in one of those places where they have the resource and the capability and aspirations to get there. Yes, but they got to get there. And, I, and as one of the programs who's been in this 14 playoff before, they have, but they haven't been back in a minute. And they're hoping to get there this fall, but in the 12 team playoff, yeah, they're probably going to be a program that hopes to set the minimum standard as playoff expectations. And I don't think that's unrealistic. Um, whether that's a Pac-12, Pac-10, Pac-16 based team or, or a Big Ten in a 18-20 team league team or some other amalgamation of something that I've yet to hear about. I think that this program aspires for those things, and I think they want to make every effort imaginable to go and do it. He's James Crepia. If you want to find great Oregon coverage, and you should want to because Oregon's really interesting, you should be reading James at Oregon Live. Dot com. James, we love having you on. Thanks for your time here on the College Football Survivor Show. Thanks, Doug. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. Joined now by Eric Hansen from the Rivals Network, Inside ND Sports. Right, Eric? You, people can find your coverage of the Fighting Irish there. And you've been covering the Fighting Irish since, uh, since uh, I don't know, Newt, right? Since Bob Davey took over for Lou Holtz. There you go. Um, (laughs) Eric Hansen knows Notre Dame as well as anybody and here to talk about the Fighting Irish who, you know, we're we're wrapping up spring ball with teams here, but there's also like some like post spring ball stuff that's been hopping with Notre Dame. And so this is a very interesting team on the field, Eric. So let's start with on the field where Sam Hartman at quarterback was as impactful as any transfer in the country this year coming from Wake Forest. He comes to Notre Dame. Tyler Buckner is there. Spring practice ends. Sam Hartman is still there than Tyler Buckner, who was a big time recruit at Notre Dame and and the starting quarterback last year at the beginning of the season, is gone to Alabama. Let's talk about the Sam Hartman part of that first. What did you think of Sam Hartman this spring? And what do you think of the idea of Sam Hartman as Notre Dame's for sure quarterback in the fall? 
he he was impressive in every way walking in the door from the standpoint of how he handled it. Um, you know, his, you know, greatest intangible is his leadership and yet he's walking into a new situation. So he walked that tightrope very well in terms of being a leader by example without telling people, you know, what they need to be doing and then also accepting that he was a new guy in the locker room and he needed to earn everybody's respect. And and he did a great job of that. Um, early in spring practice, you know, he, I don't want to say he struggled. If you saw him just in drills, you know, you'd say, oh, wow, this is, this is the guy. This is the guy that Notre Dame's been waiting for. Then he'd get into seven on sevens and 11 on 11s, and it wouldn't be quite so smooth. The timing wasn't great. You know, he had a new offensive coordinator, a new quarterbacks coach, a new playbook, and new teammates. And it took a while for that timing all to kind of sync up. But then he gets into the blue-gold game, the spring finale on April 22nd, and he looks even better than what he had looked at Wake Forest. You're like, this is the guy. This is why they went into the portal and and risked losing two quarterbacks with starting experience to the portal uh, to get this guy. This is the missing piece Notre Dame hasn't had when they've gone into the playoff and gotten waxed. Um, now, do they have enough, enough pieces around him? That's the big question now. <laughs> and this this is the new world, yeah. right, of how this works in the portal. I said it. College football is not yet a year-to-year sport in the way that college basketball almost is at this point, but certainly college football is getting closer to that than it has been in the past. I think we saw this, you know, at a place like Oregon where they bring in Bo Nix and then Bo Nix comes back for a second year and they kind of lose a big-time recruit as part of it. And you say, well, you know, Bo Nix is going to be really good in 2023. So it feels like Sam Hartman, you're saying every expectation of Go watch Sam Hartman play at Wake Forest, people, if you haven't. The, the dude, some of the duels he had in the ACC, it's like this guy can hang with anybody in the country. You do this, right, Eric? But it does affect the future of your quarterback room to lose Tyler Buckner to Alabama and for him to go down with Tommy Reese, the former Notre Dame offensive coordinator. He's at Alabama now. Is that just part of the deal, the deal that you make and Notre Dame would make this deal 10 out of 10 times? Or are they surprised that Tyler Buckner is out the door? I'm not sure that they're surprised. I think they're more disappointed uh, because I think the thought was Sam Hartman would would make Tyler Buckner better. They're they're about the same size. They have somewhat similar skill sets. Hartman's way more advanced. But this really kind of set the stage for Buckner to be the starter in 2024. But I don't think he wanted to wait for that. And, And that's where you run into it, you know, in very early December, Notre Dame had their first bowl practice for the Gator Bowl. Marcus Freeman sat down with Drew Pine, who had been a 10-game starter for Notre Dame after the Ohio State and Marshall games. Buckner got hurt. Um, and he said, we're going to bring in a portal quarterback, or we're going to try, not knowing it was going to be Hartman, to compete with you guys. Pine was out the door. Buckner stuck around, you know, he played in the Gator Bowl, went through spring practice, competed, had a really good spring for him, but an awful spring game. I mean, when you watch those two in the spring game, you're like, why was there even a contest? But but if you saw some of the other practices, you you could see that Buckner 
was improving and he's he's got a future somewhere. Uh, but yeah, it's the price you pay. And even now, Notre Dame has Sam Hartman and then two guys that have never taken college snaps. So do you go to the portal again and get a grad transfer with maybe two years of experience and risk losing one of those young guys after the season? They can't jump in the portal now, but at the end of the 23 season, they could say, see ya. So there's always that, especially at the quarterback position, there's that risk factor. I, I think at some of the other positions, not as much. But but certainly at the quarterback, and and I think the price was worth it to get Hartman. I really do. Ohio State went through this a little bit in 2019. Ryan Day brings in Justin Fields. It kind of wipes out the rest of the quarterback room. They kind of don't have a backup quarterback in 2019, and every snap is like you're crossing your fingers. And then Justin Fields stays healthy for the most part, and Ohio State goes undefeated and goes to the playoffs. It's like okay, it was worth it. So like the Sam Hartman upside, and then it's a finished product. And as you said, Eric, there are pieces here. So let's go to the offensive line because as we've gone around spring football practice, I've just, I, I say this every time, I'm so intrigued by the teams that have offensive tackles and the teams that don't because it feels like if you don't, there are good teams dying for guys in the portal at tackle, and Ohio State is one of them. Meanwhile, at Notre Dame, Joe Alt on the left side, right, might be the best tackle in college football, and Blake Fisher on the right side is a big-time dude who's coming back as a returning starter is it three out of five returning starters on that offensive line overall, but especially the tackles? How, how good do you think this offensive line should be for Notre Dame this year? And how did they look this spring? Right. Well, they're going to, you know, how offensive lines go. You're as good as your weakest link. So the offensive guards, which is where Ohio State attacked Notre Dame, if you remember in last year's game, that's where um, Notre Dame was vulnerable early in the season. Um, that's also going to be the key here, but you start with an all-American tackle and then one who has that potential and, you know, they, they could both be first-round draft picks. Alt could be a first-round draft pick next year. If you've looked at the mocks, he's in just about everybody's top 10 as a junior. Notre, Notre Dame's never had a junior offensive lineman go go into the draft. They've always been fourth year guys maybe with a fifth year that they they don't take but so Alt is really unique from that standpoint I think Zeke Corral is a much better center than what he showed against Ohio State and they've got talent at those guard positions it's you know how how will the chemistry be they haven't really named the starters at those positions the I think the left guard Billy Shrouth is going to be a first round draft choice someday. That's how highly they think of him. He he is a basically a redshirt freshman. And then the other guard spot, they have some really talented they have a um experienced kid in Andrew Kostafik who's going to be a fifth year kid who's had some starting experience. They got a guy, Rocco Spindler from doesn't he sound like he should be a starter from Michigan who uh yeah was a top 50 kind of player who hasn't been able to crack the starting lineup. So they've got talent. They have a new offensive line coach. You know, Harry Heastand was kind of the standard. He only came back for a year. But Joe Rudolph has been, a, you. I'm sure we're familiar with him when he was at Wisconsin and all the guys yep. that they turn out that are Wisconsin kids. And then he was at Virginia Tech for a year, and now he's at um, Notre Dame. But he's, 
you know, I thought they looked really good at the end of spring practice once they kind of got their rhythm with those guards. Um, I think they're going to be pretty good. And the fact that they're going to get Ohio State a little bit deeper into the season when they've been able to kind of work through some bugs against teams that aren't so good, uh, I think that's going to help uh, them when they play the Buckeyes. Notre Dame loses Michael Mayer by the second best tight end in the country last year behind Brock Bowers, just a, a fundamental number one kind of guy. Lorenzo Styles, a starting receiver a year ago, is transferred to Ohio State where he's going to try to play defensive back. I know, you know, there it feels like Notre Dame in recruiting under Marcus Freeman is elevating the receiver position with the guys they're bringing in. But when it comes to who Sam Hartman's going to throw the ball to, who he's going to, who's going to have the ball in their hands this year, Eric? Are there dynamic guys at the skill positions? Because it feels like maybe they're coming. Will they be here in 2023, or are there some questions that are coming out of spring? Well, to give you an, an example of how they think that they, how far they've come in one year, Lorenzo Styles was the leaning leading returning wide receiver in terms of receptions. By the end of spring, he was no better than their fifth wide receiver. So there are people that jumped over him. You know, they all didn't play the same wide receiver position as him. But if you go wide receiver, one, two, three, four, five, he was no better than fifth and maybe no better than sixth. So that's how much they've improved that those young receivers they brought in, they're bringing in four freshmen, but three of them, were here this spring. All three of them were tremendous. Uh, Jane Greathouse from Texas had 11 catches in the blue gold game. Now he was on Sam Hartman's team, so he was bound to look good, but uh, they have some guys that don't have the production. You look at their stats and go, who are these guys? But they have, they showed it in the spring that they have arrived and this is a better wide receiver group, much better than what they had on the field last year. At tight end, it's more of a numbers game. Uh, They don't have anybody that is Michael Mayer and and probably won't for another decade or something. But, um, you know, he set all the records. But Notre Dame, every starting tight end they've had uh, going back into 2004 has gotten drafted into the NFL. Every single one of them, not one of them's missed. And a lot of those guys have been second round draft choices. Tyler Eifert was a first. Michael Mayer probably should have been a first. But they have them in numbers. Mitchell Evans, an Ohio kid that played quarterback in high school, is probably tight end one coming out of spring. Probably the guy that's going to be the next in the lineage of Michael Mayer is a kid named Eli Reardon who tore his ACL as a high school senior, then tore his ACL during the season, same one, uh, five games into last season. But if he's healthy and he starts being able to do his thing, that's the guy to look for as the alpha in that tight end group eventually. Evans is really good. Um, And then they have like five of them. So they have multiple tight end formations and, against teams that are not quite Ohio State's caliber, where they can bully them with their size. They like to use those multiple tight end sets. So, Eric, when when you talk about having a guy like Sam Hartman who can can maybe elevate this entire offense, I 
think by the football outsiders metric offensively last year, Notre Dame was 41st. The two years before that, they were more like a top 15, top 20 offense. This is it. it there's it's so interesting to hear you describe it, right? Tackles. Awesome. No quarterback, maybe a guy like you never had before or haven't had in recent years at Notre Dame receiver young, but a bunch of potential. But then you also just lost the offensive coordinator. There's some there's some peaks. There's some questions as you fit all this together, Eric. Will this be a better offense? Like like, it, will it be better than Notre Dame's had in a in a while? Is there a higher ceiling when you add Sam Hartman and maybe some of these young explosive guys? Or how much did you feel like they're feeling the loss of Tommy Reese and just the transition of that right now? And and how did that feel this spring? And what do you think it'll be like by the time we get to September? Well, we saw the growing pains of spring for sure because you know the higher the, it was a late switch from Reese. Yep. I mean, it was February when he went to Alabama. It wasn't in you know right after the bowl game, so they had to you know hire a new offensive coordinator, hire a new quarterbacks coach, hire a new offensive line coach who had only been there a month when they started spring practice. Uh, they actually, I think, would have started spring practice earlier and pushed it back a couple weeks and condensed it just to give them more time to get ready. I, I should also mention their running back room. Had Logan Diggs not jumped in the portal late, they would have had one of the deepest running back cores. They still have great talent there. It's just he was a proven commodity. He was their second leading rusher, but they're going to be very good at running back as well. As we went through the spring, the defense was ahead of the offense all the way until the last week. Then you saw them catch up. And as soon as Hartman started clicking, then you go, okay, here, here they go. Because as soon as he can, you know, the, their defense could load the box. Well, Hartman makes that impossible. And, and Notre Dame didn't have a quarterback that could make last year that could make teams play them straight up. They do have that now. And when that happened, then it was very difficult. They could blitz. They could do anything they wanted to. And in that last week, and Hartman was just, okay, go ahead, fine. Um, and it just made everybody in the offense better. Now, now the question I think Notre Dame fans will have is, Jared, is was Jared Parker the, the right choice for offensive coordinator? You know, he was promoted from within. He's had two years of coordinator experience, hadn't called a lot of plays. That was at West Virginia. He was actually demoted his last year at West Virginia uh, or after his last year at West Virginia, and that's when he got the Notre Dame tight ends job. So people were kind of hoping that they'd get somebody like Andy Ludwig at Utah that was an established, experienced coordinator, and it didn't turn out that way. They ended up with Jared Parker. I know internally they love him. The players love him, but how's he going to show up in those big games, the Ohio State, Clemson, USC games, where you're going against, you know, elite play callers and against elite offensive talent or, or and defensive talent? I'm sorry, defensive coordinators, defensive talent. You're going against that. How's he going to stand up in those games? And that's the big question mark because he hasn't done it. You know, maybe he'll be great. You know, the thing that's interesting about Tommy Reese going to Alabama is. A lot of Notre Dame fans were like, okay, you know, I mean, their mm. offenses weren't top 10 kind of, they weren't like Ohio State, these big scoring machines, 
relentless scoring machines. I, he didn't have the material Ohio State had, but he was also responsible for recruiting the material he had on offense. So, so it's interesting because there was a there are people that miss Tommy Reese, but there was a mass shoulder shrug amongst a lot of the fan base. I gotta say, Eric, is there kind of like a listen? Like in the last thirty five years, the two times that Alabama and Notre Dame have played each other, Alabama's kind of handled Notre Dame. And now Nick Saban's plan is like, yeah, take their offensive coordinator and take their quarterback. And Tyler Buckner might be starting day game one at Alabama. What do Notre Dame people think of this? Like what? Like, hey, all right, well, fine. Like you said, it's not like it's blowing a hole in Notre Dame. Notre Dame's fine. And Alabama's taking Notre Dame's guys. Yeah, it's it's kind of um, like the Twilight Zone. It's really, there. we're living in a world where Notre Dame's backup quarterback could be Alabama's starter. It just seems so odd, given kind of the track record of um, Notre Dame not producing NFL caliber quarterbacks for a while, and uh, Alabama producing them with pretty good regularity. Uh, once once Nick realized that he needed a great defense and a great offense, so it's it's very strange. Um, and I I think people hope that. Tyler does well, but I don't know that anybody's predicting that he's going to win the job. You know, he could be easily number three as he could be number one there. So, and and the other thing that's interesting about it, you know, people ask me, well, did Tommy Reese promise, promise him this, promise him that? It's like, that's a check. Tommy Reese can't cash. You know, Nick Saban runs this. You Tommy had some autonomy at Notre Dame. He doesn't have that at Alabama. So it's, it's fascinating for us to watch uh, to see how this all turns out. But I don't think anybody is saying, boy, it wasn't worth after watching the blue gold game, anybody's and watching wake forest last year that anybody's saying, boy, I wonder if this was worth giving up uh, Tyler Buckner, if that was the price to get Sam Hartman. Defensively, Notre Dame loses Isaiah Foskey off the edge to the number 40 pick in the NFL draft. How good, you know, this is this is a program that has plays good defense, right? Like, how good should this defense be this year, Eric? What'd you see this spring? Yeah, what I saw this spring was um, the areas that were supposed to be their strengths looked like strengths. Their corners looked really good. Their linebackers, they've got this young group coming up behind a veteran group, and it was a nice blend. They looked pretty good there. The questions were safety and defensive line just because of what they lost on the defensive line. And because I don't know that former Ohio state assistant Al Washington had the best year last year. I think he's a guy with something to prove and, and he had something to prove this spring and something to prove on the recruiting trail. And this spring, the defensive line was the surprise. Now the surprise level of the spring needs to be the surprise level in August as well. There needs to be, a step up, but they had a lot of new guys playing a lot of very athletic guys without a lot of experience. They added an Ohio state, uh, grad transfer and Javante Jean Baptiste. Um, we didn't see a lot of him, uh, but, but they are very high on him. Uh, he will probably be a starter or at least a rotational guy for them. And then their safeties are really good. The top three, but they are really hurting for depth. So they are shopping in the portal for another safety to 
to get through that. I think if we have the same conversation about those two position groups in August that we had in the spring, then this is going to be a better defense than last year. But they need those two pieces to fall in place. So, Eric, this is this is a team. It's a great schedule. And I, I would imagine that the season ticket holders at Notre Dame are very happy this year. <laughs> Ohio State and USC in South Bend within a month of each other in the middle of the year. They have a road trip to Clemson. We know Notre Dame always is playing a great schedule. You know, it's one of these things, Eric, where, uh, you know, last year's in the offseason, it's like Marcus Freeman. Everybody's, oh, Marcus Freeman. We can't. Everyone's so excited. And then they lose to Ohio State. And then the quarterbacks hurt and they lose to Marshall. And then they lose to Stanford and they're three and three. And then Notre Dame wins six of the final seven. They'll only lost to USC, wins the bowl. And now it's like, I don't know. Now we're on like, well, Luke Fickle's new and Matt Rule's new. And like, and here Lincoln Riley's going to go crazy in year two. Like, but they're built. You something's happening here, right? Is there? Do you what? What does it feel like? This is where it really starts. It's year two, a good first year. No, you can't dispute that it was a good first year for Marcus Freeman. And you see a Sam Hartman. You see young receiver talent. Like, what? What are the vibes, Eric? Does it feel like that there's a real opportunity here for Notre Dame with Ohio State and USC? as home games that something could pop this year, or is it still a little bit more about the future long-term prospects of the program and that what it's really people are excited about is when you get to the 12 team playoff and man in five years, what Notre Dame's going to look like. Where, where is the program in year two under Marcus? Well, I think people are, are hoping that this is a special year and there were enough new pieces where I think we are all kind of wondering is are all those going to fall in place? You know, at, at seems like at Alabama, Georgia, Ohio State, they kind of n- know what's next, and there's not as many question marks um, every year, and and there are larger margins for error. With Notre Dame, everything has to kind of click for those playoff seasons to happen. Getting Sam Hartman was a big click uh, in that, and. Uh, Marcus Freeman's recruiting is also a big click in that he's able to get kids on campus that Brian Kelly wasn't able to, or what didn't have maybe think Notre Dame could get involved with those kids. And it's even more important now because of NIL and the portal. Um, I think where people are concerned about the long term is Notre Dame has a much smaller pool of portal candidates than just about everybody else. You know, they used to say that about high school recruiting, but they can recruit grad transfers easy. They can usually get in kids that just finished their freshman year. If it's a kid that finished, just finished a sophomore and junior year, it's almost impossible. And the other sports are finding this out too. Every once in a while, maybe a Northwestern kid can slip through and be the exception, but you're losing a huge part of the transfer portal by not being able to recruit those kids. And so if Notre Dame has a big year of attrition, can they get it all back through the portal with just freshmen and just grad transfers? And I think that's what the concern is. So there's also the concern is that can Notre Dame compete and get five-star recruits if 
they are not more aggressive in the transfer portal. I mean, in NIL or even mm. have, you know, walk the line of, is this legal or is this not legal? I mean, there's a lot of fans that get on our message board that think that Notre Dame should do these acquisition fees that some of the other schools do. And Notre Dame has a good NIL program, but you need to commit, you need to get there, and then they get you situated. And so that's where maybe the long-term, but they feel like they're still better off than Brian Kelly. It's ironic because Brian Kelly's recruiting well at, LSU, he's doing things that he didn't do at Notre Dame. And, and I think he learned some lessons when he left Notre Dame and, and also learned, you know, he needed to be more aggressive and he feels he can be at LSU. But Marcus feels like he can do that at Notre Dame. He's got a great recruiting pitch. You know, he, he says, choose hard. Notre Dame is going to be harder. You know, the classes are going to be harder. He does, they used to try to whitewash that in recruiting. He wants kids to embrace that, that, that this is going to make you a better person down the road. So embrace the difficulty of it. So I think people are excited about long-term and short-term, but they're also worried about how these new things in college football will play. They feel like if they had gotten this version of Marcus Freeman maybe five years ago when the rules were different, Notre Dame would be killing it. But they are, you know, they lost some big five-star guys in December last year. And the, at least with one of them, the implication was it was NIL related. Um, and I don't know how much that's happening with Ohio State, if they feel like that's also eroding their recruiting power, or they feel like they're competitive in that space. No, they definitely felt it last December. Yeah. Ohio State felt that last December, and I think they've adjusted and gotten more aggressive since then. And I feel like I think this next signing period, they'll be able to to stack up a little bit better. But everybody's everybody's still kind of finding their way, Eric. And it's it is a it's a it's an administrative decision, right? It has to come top down a little bit. But I also think sometimes the people in the football building have to push because sometimes the administration is maybe reluctant for good reasons, but it's like, Hey, like if you want us to hang, we have to be able to hang here. So I do, I, I don't think everyone's sorted it out yet, but, um, but you gotta, you gotta at least give yourself the opportunity to compete. Okay. He's Eric Hansen. You'll find great coverage of Notre Dame football and other athletics at inside Fascinating year for the fighting Irish. Again, it is um, a situation where, it's all right there, right? The opportunity is there when you have Ohio State coming in to South Bend on September 23rd, USC to South Bend on October 14th, at Clemson on November 4th, and then, man, November 18th, Wake Forest. What? Oh, it's going to be a this-is-your-life situation <laughs> for Sam Hartman for that game. My God, that guy's going to be in tears before the game, Wake Forest coming to Notre Dame. Yeah, that's uh, that's going to be really really interesting and it's funny because the portal allows these matchups to happen remember when coaches would say well you can't go to a a team that that's a future opponent and stuff before the portal and and they would block people now you get these matchups i mean lorenzo styles is going to be playing against notre dame this year presumably so um yeah that's going to be very very interesting to see what happens with Wake Forest and Dave Clawson's a great coach. 
Um, yeah, there's a lot of games to look forward to and some trap games. I think NC State on the road early is a trap game for them uh, that they better watch out for. Um, and Clemson, I'm excited about that. The last time I was at Clemson, it was like a hurricane. It was like record rainfall down there. That was 2015, the last time I had I had made that trip. Um, but I'll tell you, when you were talking about the excitement about Marcus Freeman, the turning point really was the Clemson game. When they stomped Clemson in their stadium, the and it wasn't close. Usually if you have field storming games, it's a close game that mm-hmm. is dramatic at the end. I mean, that that bowl emptied out onto the field, and it was incredible. I had been there um, during the pandemic in 2021 season when they beat Clemson in a double overtime game and Clemson was number one and there were 11,000 people in the stadium and they all stormed the field. So it was interesting to see, you know, 77,000 do it after the 11,000 had done it a couple years before. I I actually took a picture to compare from the press box because there were only 11 of us in the press box that day because of COVID restrictions. Yeah. So it was, but that was when Marcus really won over the Notre Dame fan base was the Clemson game. Those were games. Brian Kelly didn't win very often. He did the in 2020, but his record against top 10 teams was abysmal. And for Marcus to, you know, knock one off Clemson was in the top 10 at the time was, was uh, something that, that really won the fans over. Eric Hansen, greatly appreciate your time. We'll look forward to talking to you again in the fall and uh, should be a fascinating season for the Fighting Irish. Thanks so much, Eric. Looking forward to it. Take care. And that'll do it for this edition of the College Football Survivor Show. Always appreciate you guys making us part of your college football fandom. Shahan will be back next week. We're kind of done with spring football, so I know I want us to kind of rank where we think teams are. And I think that's different maybe than what your top 25 ranking would be in the fall. Sort of like who really caught your eye coming out of spring. Maybe we'll make Shahan do a ranking like that. And there is a program out there that we have not covered in detail on our spring football wrap that I think we have to get to. And that's Michigan. And we'll plan to do that at some point sooner than later for now for James Crepia, for Eric Hansen. Thanks again for their time. I'm Doug Maurice, And that was the college football survivor show. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line.